This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be medical advice under any circumstance. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for listening. Uh, this is Kevin Grzynski. I'm an N4 going to internal med. I'm wrapping up my emergency med clerkship right now. I take the shelf tomorrow, and it's actually my last shelf of medical school period. So that's cool. We have Dr. Abrams with us again. Glad, glad to be here. I got to just say one thing. So uh, today is July 1st. Is that true? Yes. And I think one year from today, okay. everybody <laughs> is going to be moving on to another wow. another part of their medical career. So, true. so uh, you're on the countdown through the last through the last year. It really start really starts today. I'm sweating. <laughs> 65 days to go. <laughs> we have two guests with us today. I'll let them introduce themselves. So I'm Grace Alexander. I'm an M4. Um, and I'm planning on applying into medicine and I have an interest in cardiology right now. I'm on my cardiology elective. So awesome. we're having a fun time there. Hey everyone. My name is John Stathopoulos. Um, I'm also going into internal medicine and currently I'm on a hepatology rotation. Cool. All right, guys, we'll just kick things off right away. Yeah, before, before you start, I, I am going to, I want to tell you a little bit about how this case came into being. And so this is certainly in the last six weeks, I received a call from a very, very close friend of, of, of my wife and I, and, uh, and she called me to ask some medical advice about, about a friend of hers. And I listened to the case. I actually spoke with the person on the phone for about three minutes. And, and I said, I really think it's important that you come in to be seen. Red <laughs> flag. Uh, <laughs> so and so that really was it. The person came in. Uh, the person came at the beginning of next week. Is is a, a very and I've gotten to know this person now. Is a very 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 wonderful person. Good. But uh, one of the things you know I'll say as, as an internist and as a primary care person is that uh, you know things. And I don't want to say interesting because that's not what we really are here about. Sure. But wonderful people come to us from many different places. And so this is this this case in my way is sort of an example of of, of one of the great things about being a doctor. How about that? It's a good way to say it. Sounds good. It's a good way to start off. <laughs> All right, guys. Aliquot one. We have a 63-year-old male presenting to the office with four months of progressive difficulty swallowing. How do you guys characterize difficulty swallowing? Like what kind of things in the history are you gonna to want to tease out? I guess maybe you have to ask them what part of the swallowing process is difficult. Is it, you know, it's difficult to initiate the swallow and you end up coughing up food of some kind, or is it more you swallow and it feels like it just doesn't go where it's supposed to, or it gets stuck or something along those lines. I completely agree. Like differentiating between something that's more oropharyngeal versus esophageal is important when you're first seeing a patient with this complaint or concern, I should say. Great approach, guys. Uh, I think, I mean, to, to think of it in that way, like anatomically is a good way. I, another way I was thinking also was like, is this something obstructing? Could this be an obstructing process or neuromuscular process? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What kind of history questions would you want to ask this person? I think you'd want to know if there are any other generalized constitutional symptoms, so like fevers, chills, weight loss, things that might be more concerning for malignancy. I think you can definitely ask them what, uh, if, is it solids or is it liquids or a combination of both that's giving them some problems. What kind of social history stuff would you guys be worried about here? 
think there are some infectious disease processes that obviously happen within the mouth as well as the esophagus. So maybe kind of ask them um, kind of different activities that they've been on and uh, certain things that could um, lead to either immunosuppression of some kind or something along sure. those lines. How about like more everyday social risk factors that people might engage in? Maybe like alcohol use or, you know, I guess diet is something it's probably sure. great to ask every patient about to see kind of what foods they're eating. I think also what we're kind of implying is like a reflux type of process. So difficulty swallowing doesn't have to be something big and scary. I think it could also be something pretty simple. Uh, I mean, it has been going on for four months, but GERD can be chronic. GERD is chronic. And so maybe we could ask also timing. Are they noticing difficulty in their like throat region more so at nighttime, laying flat, positional, things like that? I think usually when we think of like GI processes that happen as a consequence of anxiety, usually you think of the lower digestive tract. Perhaps there maybe it could also involve the upper tract to some extent. Yeah. So maybe just asking them about life stresses, kind of what's going on in their life right now. And, and I agree with all of with you guys, everything you say, you know, another thing maybe that I think about is because I guess I love this possibly into dysphagia. Okay. And and sometimes dysphagia is associated with pain, and sometimes it's pain less. Sure. And dysphagia associated with pain makes me think of things different than dysphagia associated with not associated with pain. The other thing, and now I'm betraying my age, <laughs> betraying whatever, is I really love your thoughts about anatomic approach because I totally always think about everything anatomical <laughs> because physiology changes. I'm sorry to say, but anatomy seems yeah, that's a good point. Much more constant. Uh, constant. <laughs> And, uh, and, <laughs> and thinking about it that way and thinking about where do I think the anatomic process yeah. will be, you know, disruptive is, is a helpful way to think about this. Totally. I want to just comment on Grace's point of thinking about GERD and characterizing that a bit further. I just finished a clinical reasoning book and it covered all kinds of biases and how we fall into pitfalls in our thinking. And a, a big one is common things are common. Yeah. I know. I mean, we're, we hear different quality. We're doing a big piece, so we know it's going to be something weird, probably. But in reality, this, the person that comes in with stuff like that is probably it's probably going to be weird. Yeah, <laughs> it's the old one you hear of beats. Yeah. Horses, not zebra. Horses. Sounds good. You guys ready for the next eloquent? Sure. I think so. Yeah. We have some additional history. He denied any pain with swallowing. He had difficulty with both solid and liquids. In his own words, he described the difficulty as the inability to get food to the back of his throat and swallow. As a result, he had 35 pounds of weight loss over this time. He was admitted to an outside hospital two months ago. He had blood work done and an EGD that was normal. He was discharged on a PPI. So we got a little bit of information there. We got some characterizing facts about his chief complaint. What are some of the pertinent negatives that are lowering your suspicion here? For certain things. I guess it rules out odynophagia or like diff or painful swallowing. So for me, that maybe decreases the chance of an esophagitis or something along those lines. Right. Something that stands out to me, this isn't really a pertinent negative, but something that stands out to me is the uh, inability to get food to the back of the throat. So it's almost like it's a muscular or a pharyngeal process. Mm -hmm. It's the physical act of moving the food. That's a great thought. Yeah. So it kind of rules out things that we might think are lower in the jet tract. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess also it says the EGD was normal. So the endoscopist didn't see anything abnormal. 
I guess at that point you would hope she or he would take biopsies of the esophagus as well. So I, I think that couples really well with Grace's point. You're kind yeah. of, it almost seems further up rather than an esophageal process. I think, especially on EGD, we see like, you know, you mentioned infection earlier, if this person was immunocompromised, we see those CMV or mm-hmm. HSV lesions. I think also going along with a negative EGD, we could think, okay, this probably isn't something structural in a sense that sure. we don't see strictures or uh, like if you had a previous surgery mm-hmm. um, or a large malignancy, things along those lines. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in a way it's, it's pretty reassuring for some, some of our initial like things. Yeah, definitely. definitely. What do you guys think about the weight loss? I think that's concerning. I think that's a red flag. Definitely. I guess, you know, you think the weight loss could be coming from different things. Could it be like a metabolic thing in regards to cancer in which he's just consuming a lot more calories um, via the cancer? Or is it his dysphagia has just gotten so difficult that he's just not consuming as much food? And it it makes it hard to kind of, yeah, how you weigh the weight loss. I think in like a a patient coming in with like respiratory complaints and they have 35 pounds of weight loss, I'm way more concerned initially than I might be for this guy Mm because he has a reason to be losing weight also. Totally. Very true. And I can tell you again, having seen him, he was, he was never big, but he looked, I'd never seen him before, but he looked, he looked, he looked skinny. How about that? Okay. <laughs> he, he looks skinny. Put it into perspective. <laughs> Let's go to Aliquot 3. A little bit more history. So the patient works as a carpenter and notes that over the time, he's also began to require both hands to saw, whereas he previously only needed one. More recently, he's noted worsening in his ability to button a shirt. He has also noted new slurring of his speech. You got how that's <laughs> I think we're both, I don't want to speak for you. No, I think please. what I'm thinking is a larger neurological process uh, is occurring that might be just manifesting with the dysphagia in the beginning, but it sounds like he has other larger um, neuromuscular manifestations of whatever sort of systemic Uh, Yeah, I think that brings up a wonderful point. You know, initially during this conversation, we were thinking very digestive, but now it definitely kind of seems more neurologic. Kind of interesting. It seemed like he noticed that he needed to start using both hands and kind of seems like it was a more, it wasn't just one event where it's like this happened and then the next day I couldn't do these things. It kind of seems more insidious based on how it's described. It definitely shifts. Are you less worried about with that thought? You're implying it. Okay, I'll, I'll just I guess address <laughs> the elephant in the room. Um, I think, you know, you think about a stroke, yeah. especially in his, yeah. in his age category, and did he have a stroke overnight or something? But based on uh, this piece of information, it seems more insidious, so probably less likely. Yeah, it's great. Totally agree. What do you guys think about the pattern of this weakness that he's described to us? So when we think about neurological diseases, like, for example, I'm going to mention ALS. Yeah. We think about issues with muscle we think about muscular issues with some of the, um, like bulbar symptoms. So dysphagia, uh, I believe you have like, eye, like difficulty with mm-hmm. eye movements and then also hands are something that manifests early in ALS. Uh, I'm not saying this is necessarily ALS, but, um, you're thinking about it. Though, right? Yeah, I'm definitely think thinking about it. about it when I read this. I am. Yeah. I think that brings up a great point, at least from the information we have now, it seems very motor dominated. And, and I think yeah, ALS is a great thing to bring up when it comes to that. You guys are doing great. I guess I got to tell you right now, you guys are you guys are probably way ahead of how I was thinking <laughs> when, when I when I heard it. Um, yeah, no, it was and again. I'll say it was it was interesting for me to listen to him describe his symptoms. Yeah, sure. And you know, this guy, as he says, he was a carpenter, and you know, he just kept working through this. He just said, sure. "Okay, I'll just put my other hand out there, and I'll yeah. I'll saw and do that." So. I, I think you really hit the right point in thinking about what's the time course of this, sure. what's the time course of this disease. And 
you know, through the history, this is the time course of his experience. Yeah. You always got to think about that also, because we sort of project what we think onto these things, but this is, this is him. And this is, this is how he describes what's happened to him over the last couple of months. Sure. Great point. You guys are definitely season M4. <laughs> already busting out this, uh, this isn't CBA, it's too insidious. It's gotta be something neuromuscular. Let's move on to Aliquot 4. More history. Okay. His past history was remarkable for intermittent gout. His only medication was a meprazole, phony mix daily. He's no allergies. He smoked one pack per day for 30 years and he quit in 2015. He drank alcohol and smoked marijuana rarely. His family history was unremarkable. And then on ROS, he denied any neck or back pain and complained of no sensory symptoms. How does this information influence your differential? Are you worried about things less from anything here? I think one part that sticks out to me that I didn't even think of is he denied the neck or back pain. I'm sure when you were asking that, it was probably, you know, could there be a compression of something going on? Um, I guess based on the previous uh, piece of information, it sounds more diffuse rather than something local that you can say maybe this part of the spine or this part, this nerve is being um, impinged upon, but I wouldn't have thought to ask about neck or back pain, but I think it definitely, definitely helps put everything in perspective. I think another key point is the no sensory symptoms mm. in terms of framing one idea that we've had previously, which is ALS. And with ALS, we, we know that it's sensory sparing. It's kind of like a key part of that disease process. So yeah. that would support it. And I think the gout, you know, gout is one of those things for better, for worse in our, in medicine that you see, and you kind of attribute maybe a high meat diet or you know, alcohol or something like that. Um, I, I don't think it changes much as the differential, but you know, at least in my own biases in medicine, that's one thing that kind of sticks out to me. Yeah. Pretty unremarkable. Sounds, sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, would, I mean, I think cervical myelopathy sure. could potentially cause weakness mm -hmm. of the something weakness, yeah. weakness below but might not explain the sure. dysphagia piece of sure. the whole thing but yeah. still it's something sure. to explain yeah definitely i think at least another thing you know I, I don't know how often you see these in the real world but at least on board exams you know we kind of see myasthenia and lambert eaton and i think that's something maybe also i'd put on the differential sure i like that i guess we'll see i don't know <laughs> <laughs> so i can tell you now this is we're ending our history gathering. Okay. We're going to move on to physical exam findings. It's been a while so, since I thought of the neuro exam. <laughs> I got to tell you this. So I'm sitting in the office with this guy and I'm like, I better do a full <laughs> do every piece I had to find by flex hammer. I had to figure out all the pieces sure. of this because, because I'm supposed to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you want to sound like a dummy when I called up whoever I needed to call up. Yeah. <laughs> So we'll start with vitals. He's a six foot three guy, weighs 142 pounds, putting his BMI at 17. That supports that he's had some significant weight loss and he's a pretty skinny guy now. He has a temperature of 98.3 Fahrenheit. He's breathing 16 breaths per minute. His pulse is 68 beats per minute and his blood pressure is 120 over 70. Constitutionally, he's alert and oriented. Got off the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> he has bitemporal wasting. His throat is clear, his decreased gag reflex, questionable few tongue fasciculations, neck supple, no thyromegaly. On respiratory exam, his lungs were clear. On cardiac exam, he had a S1, S2, no S3 or S4, no murmurs. His abdomen was soft and non-tender, no masses. And his joints were cool with normal range of motion. Before we break down the neuro exam, you guys want to comment on anything we've 
given you so far? Uh, so in the HE and T portion, we have decreased gag reflux and then questionable tongue fasciculations. I know that fasciculations are generally a lower motor neuron finding. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so maybe we can be on the lookout for an upper motor neuron finding <laughs> now. Sure. Yeah, um, I think that's great. That's kind of what stands out. And then also his BMI. Yeah, I think to me, it's like, boy, he's lost a lot of yes. weight um, from what it sounds like, which is really hard. So um, yeah, definitely agree. Those two things stick out. Good job, guys. Let's uh let's talk about some cranial nerves. <laughs> so Dr. Abrams broke them down. Cranial nerve two is intact, the finger counting, and his visual fields were normal. Three, four, and six, the pupils were three millimeters and reactive. His extraocular eye movements were normal. He had normal convergence, no diplopia, and no ptosis. Cranial nerve five had normal facial sensation. Cranial nerve seven, there's no asymmetry. His cheek puff was weak. Cranial nerve eight, his hearing is normal. Nine and 10, normal palate rays, uvula midline. Cranial nerve 11, he had five out of five shoulder shrug and head turn. And then cranial nerve 12, he had normal tongue protrusion. He had no atrophy. No atrophy. He had those little wiggles in his tongue. Mm -hmm. We can pause here if you guys wanna just think, think out the cranial nerve exam or we can keep going. I guess it looks mostly normal, right? I guess we, there was a part about the facial puff, the cheek puff is weak. Yeah. Um, what were you hoping to see with this? Like what would, <laughs> what would keep supporting the train run? Yeah, I don't know. I think probably extra, extraocular movements, if those were um, a bit irregular, you know, that would kind of raise concern, but it's mostly, mostly benign cranial nerve exam. I was totally ready to see like a, a deviated uvula or- Sure an abnormal cranial nerve nine and 10. And then sure. if we're thinking like Lambert Eaton myasthenia, which definitely should have been on the differential, I was ready to see ptosis and- Yeah, definitely. That's, true. that's what I was ready to see. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't there. Sure. So the, his motor exam, he had diffuse muscle atrophy. The tone was normal. There were no abnormal movements. Mm-hmm. The neck specifically, the flexion was four out of five. Extension was five out of five. Bilateral upper extremities had five out of five flexion and extension with the exception of mild hand intrinsic weakness, which was four out of five. And then the bilateral lower extremities had five out of five flexion and extension. Sensation was normal to light touch in all extremities. Reflexes, DTRs were two plus and symmetric in bilateral upper and lower, no Hoffman's, no clonus. The plantar response was down going bilaterally. On gait exam, he had normal casual toe, heel and tandem gait. I'm gonna toss this to, to Grace now because I'm wondering what she's thinking with <laughs> this additional neuro history on physical. So, muscle atrophy is also, can be a lower motor neuron sign. Hand weakness, that goes back to what we kind of already knew with his difficulty sawing and things like that. I'm not really sure what to make of this. I, I guess I would have hoped, well, not for his sake, but I would have hoped that the reflexes would have been increased or hyperreflexic or something to kind of paint the picture of ALS, but I mean, those are my baseline thoughts. <laughs> yeah, no, great. I think when I was reading through this case too, I was like, this is ALS, yeah. like definitely we're gonna see some weird sure. mix of upper end motor neuron findings. Let's let's go back to neurology for a sec. Are you guys able to localize anything with this exam? Hmm. Honestly, not so much. I don't think so. Is it says bilateral upper extremities, flexion of the mild hand intrinsic weakness? But you know, of course, we we did see some signs going on with the tongue. I don't think, I I I don't feel comfortable localizing it at this point. I agree with that, and I think the diffuse muscle atrophy also supports that. Yeah. In that 
guess that could also just be physical deconditioning if we take that out of it. But I'm not necessarily sure there's like one area you could point to to say, okay, there could be some sort of lesion in this one specific spot yeah. that puts together, what have we said, uh, cheek puff, tongue fasciculations, mm-hmm. and then upper extrem- upper extremity weakness yeah. in the hand. So Grace, I agree with you totally. Yeah. I, I, the, the, again, the thing that, uh, two things I was looking for, obviously ptosis would be one of them. The other one was to look for some sort of hyperreflexia and absolutely not. I mean, he had, he was just getting in diffusely weak. Yeah. <laughs> Grace was kind of doing this already subconsciously, but I'm going to ask you guys now to take a step back and reframe your problem representation. So in two or three sentences, summarize all the important things you've taken away from the case so far that are like guiding your thinking going forward. Okay, so a 60 something year old man with four months of progressive dysphagia, as well as a variety of different muscular deficits. He's coming in, he appears cachectic, he has diffuse muscle atrophy, then he has some focal neurologic findings that don't localize to one area. Great. Yeah. Anything you want to add, John? Or No, I think, I think Grace got it all. Like weight loss, she used the word cachectic, which definitely applies to him. Yeah. More sounds like muscle weakness and muscle atrophy that stick out in terms of the exam. I guess we said perhaps with some lower motor neuron findings on physical exam. Right. And I guess the other thing I'd, I'd ask you guys, which, which I think you've already covered is, you know, I do like to think of things as acute, subacute, and then we'll throw it into the more chronic category sure. and where the breaks are. I don't know if you guys would characterize this as. I think I would say subacute. Oh, it is well. Subacute, maybe again, based on his history, subacute, chronic. I don't know what, what you think, Kevin. I don't know. It, it's I'm. I lean towards chronic. It's progressive. He has a, he has sure a progressive. got a progressive illness, right? Yeah. And you know, I don't know at, at four or five months is it if we moved into the chronic phase or not. Sure. Certainly not acute. Yeah, definitely not acute. It's heading that way. Wherever we are, it's I think we're all thinking it's heading that way. Yeah. Let's look at some labs. So some initial data. We got a CBC, it had a mildly elevated white count at 12. He was a little bit anemic. Uh, hemoglobin was 13. Hematocrit 40, MCV 97, RDW 13, platelets at 300. On CMP, his sodium was 141, potassium 4.2, chloride 103, bicarb 28. He did not have an elevated gap. His BUN was 19, creatinine was 0.7, and glucose was 68. Total protein was 7.3, albumin was 4.0, calcium 9.3. His bilirubin was normal. His alkphos was normal. He did have some mildly elevated LFTs. His AST was 106. And I'm sorry, his, yeah, his AST was 106 and ALT was 78. Let's pause there. Why don't we break this down? Comment on the CBC and then the, your, the findings from the CMP. I guess CBC is mostly normal. Um, some anemia with, I guess it's still normocytic kind of. Um, on the upper end of the normal acidic side, nothing too remarkable. This is just something I'm almost just thinking out loud. It's generally with people who use alcohol, you kind of expect the macrocytic anemia. I'm not exactly sure if you see that with people who are just, I guess he, you can say he's probably poor nutrition just because he can't eat 
So that's um, that's my analysis of the CBC. I'll just take the BNP part of the CMB <laughs> and leave the rest And then uh, <laughs> the kidney function looks mostly normal. Kidney function looks yeah. mostly normal. I think something, something I was just thinking of now, maybe because recency effect, we were talking about it at a case in the ER yesterday. We were just talking about how this is subacute, is this chronic, and the hemoglobin's a little low. I think at some point we could start thinking about like an anemia of chronic disease. Sure. We don't have it, but you know, iron studies would be helpful there. Definitely. All right, Grace, why don't you uh, <laughs> so take it away? Something that sticks out to me is the albumin is normal, which in someone who has weight loss and uh, cachexia, I would think maybe it wouldn't be normal. Um, and then relatively, so I'm not really sure what to make about the LFTs yeah. being elevated. AST is higher than ALT, but not necessarily double. What can cause LFT elevation? Well, I'm on hepatology right now. <laughs> so right, yeah, <laughs> definitely. It's in like, <laughs> sounds good, I hope. <laughs> um, I guess, you know, you see your liver enzymes that you talk about so frequently and, you know, the alphos, you know, kind of relates more to the biliary system. This kind of looks more like hepatocellular damage, which obviously a lot of different things can cause hepatocellular damage. Um, I guess you can just say it's an inflammatory process of some kind happening at the level of the liver that that's most likely to cause a rise in those LFTs. Is there any other organ system you might consider? That would lead to LFTs? Yeah. I guess the biliary tree can do it. Alphos, I think more broadly, you know, that can be seen in the bone, can also be seen in placenta. I don't know, I feel like with the AST and ALT, I usually just think pretty narrowly of the liver. Yeah, no, and I think that's the correct thing to do. I'm, I'm not going to tell you guys right now where I'm getting at, because I think you're going to get there in a second. <laughs> but I, I like how John broke that down. Yeah, this, we don't really know what this means yet, but it's su suggesting possibly some inflammatory picture in the liver. We have some more specific data. So acetylcholine S receptor blocking antibody was normal at 11. His CK was elevated at 2000. Indicative of muscle activity or inflammation is how I would kind of think of that. Definitely. I would say these labs definitely make me think more of an inflammatory picture than I did maybe a couple minutes ago. Um, so I think Grace said it perfectly. I'm going to rewind back to my question now. <laughs> what, what else might cause an AST, ALT elevation that isn't a liver? I guess perhaps muscle. Yeah. So AST and ALT are also enzymes in muscle, mm -hmm. something we don't always think about, but... Mm -hmm. And then the, what do we think Dr. Abrams was thinking with the acetylcholine receptor blocking antibody? John had said it earlier. I think myasthenia. Yeah. I couldn't get off that. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking that up. What do I, what do I order to do this? <laughs> um, Even with no tosis and nothing else. Yeah. Still myasthenia. <laughs> hey, gotta rule it out. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's, that's uh, whatever that's, you know, I don't want to say it's recency bias. It's uh it's uh it's availability bias. I've sure. seen a bunch of cases. I think, okay, that's what it has to be. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> We're going to take a pause here because Alquat 7 is our last Alquat and it's about to get very specific. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys had a good problem representation. We have a little bit more data now. That's, it seems to be directing your guys thinking towards an inflammatory picture. I'm going to ask that you guys not doesn't have to be specific, but kind of broadly walk through your differential at this point. 
So for mine, I think I would start us off with ALS. And then I think it's also appropriate to include the two that John had mentioned. Uh, and then thinking more broadly, I'm trying to think more broadly at the moment, uh, which that's something I struggle with in general is thinking of one diagnosis and then yeah. going, but thinking more about, I'll keep thinking more broadly while you. No, I think, I think that's a great differential. I think now maybe we include some myocytes into the picture um, because we see that inflammation of the muscle indicative by the CK as well as the uh, AST and ALT, which is interesting because I feel like usually the way we learn those is that they're more. I guess like in your shoulders and more proximal, but I think I'd include the myositis to the differential at this point. The polymyositis and dermatum. I think so. I think so. All right. I'm going to challenge you guys. How would you differentiate those like clinically? For dermatomyositis, there's skin. Sure. So I think that's the main sure. difference, but both include proximal muscle weakness yeah. classically. Definitely. Definitely. It's weird though. Like with those, if you asked me like an hour ago, John, like do the myocytes present with like dysphagia? I'd be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and like, it's so weird. To, and I guess that's the duty of medicine is to see how far we've come from that, from that um, chief complaint. So, yeah. And, and I, you know, I am so with you guys because <laughs> I, you know, the next day I get the lab, actually I don't get the acetylcholinesterase blocking antibodies back. But the CPK comes back 2000 the next day. And I'm like, this does not make a lot of sense to me. And I'm with you. This, it, it makes it fall, at least in my mind, just as you guys say, and, and I am so with you. My original differential diagnosis was, at first I was sure he had myasthenia, and then I was sure he had ALS, and then I get this back. And, and I'm saying, you shouldn't get this, in e you shouldn't get this in either of those diseases. Sure. And, you know, putting that with no upper motor neuron signs, mm -hmm. um, just sort of drew me back into that pile of, 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 is this, is this a, is this a muscle disorder or is this a nerve disorder? Sure. And, you know, is Kevin's going to show in a minute, you know, how, how do we go about really separating all this stuff out? And, and as you start thinking broadly, you know, reaching into your, I guess, step two brains, is that right? Are you guys in, are you guys, are you guys reaching your step two brain yet? I have. I have as well. <laughs> so Reaching into your step two brains. I think we're past step two now. Yeah. I think step three is much easier. <laughs> Reaching into your step two brains, what, are the, what, are, what, what, what sits in there inside your step two brains? Sure. You're, you're going to need to pull that out. Um, I'm going to keep challenging you guys because you guys are just continuing to impress me. John, you're thinking, you mentioned myositis. I did. How are you gonna? How are you gonna evaluate that? And what are you gonna look for to differentiate between that group of diseases? From what I remember, I think the way you diagnose myositis is a biopsy. It's a pretty aggressive step and something you don't want to put a patient through unless you feel like you know that's really necessary at this point. Um, so I think you kind of start juggling that diagnostic step. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't quite know if I'm there yet. And um, like you know, you don't want to do that unless you really need to. Anything you want to add, Grace? I agree. And then also just, uh, I guess we could further evaluate Well, we did do a physical exam in terms of muscle. I was thinking the proximal muscle weakness, things like that, but I think classically the diagnosis is the biopsy. So. Definitely the gold standard. And I think John hit it perfectly. It's invasive. So yeah. if there are other things, I think. There's, there's often a first step that we take in these cases. I don't know if you guys have, have had the chance to see some cases like this. So there are some other diagnostics. And again, at some level, 
you know, bias is the answer, but there are some diagnostics that help us characterize, particularly whether, whether these conditions are primarily neurologic or neuropathic sure. or, myo my, or, or myopathic. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and I, I wonder if you guys have seen some of the tests that maybe people do to, to, to distinguish these. I'm not sure if I have. Yeah, I'm not sure if I have either. I think EMG. Mm -hmm. Sure, that makes sense. That's what I've kind of seen as being like a next step at this point. As a person who's had three or four EMGs, I'll tell you that is the next step before they do a biopsy. You got to be stuck with needles a lot before they cut into you with needles. Hey, I guess that, that's a good thought. One thing that kind of gets me is just thinking out loud, and I don't know if this is just a bias I have in my own brain, is that when I see a creatinine kinase, I think of inflammation of the muscle, but then I'm not sure. Obviously, there are neurologic disorders that lead to atrophy. I guess if atrophy is just the loss of muscle tissue, like, I don't know, do you get an elevated TK? I really just don't know the answer to that. I don't know either. It's a good question. No, that is a good, I, I think your question is well taken. Mm -hmm. And, and when we get to the end of this, it was exactly <laughs> a question that I sure, had. Sure. And I can give you, uh, I can, I, I'll, I'll circle around and give you, give you an answer. Okay. Okay. All right, guys. Alpot seven. EMG is consistent with an irritative myopathy. And of, of course, the anti CN <laughs> body was elevated at 61. Uh, I'm not going to ask, <laughs> just, just, I'm not going to ask you about that right now. Does this help? It tells us there's some sort of myopathy going on and that there's some sort of inflammatory process with an antibody. That's, that's about yeah. as much as I can grab from no, it. No, I think that, that like is a great like anger. And then again, it's this, this podcast has really challenged my lexicon in medicine, <laughs> but it's like, at this point, can we say it's an autoimmune condition? Um, Mm. We have an irritative myopathy with an elevated, or with some antibody of reference. I guess this is where you call room to ask them what they know of that. Um, but yeah, I, that's kind of where I'm at right now. I'm going to try to go into Dr. Abrams' mind here. I think he got the EMG and it showed this irritative myopathy. And then he went to Dr. Up-to-Date or Dr. Google and looked up what antibodies might be associated with a myositis and sent a panel up for him. Mm -hmm. And then this one came back positive. I think I want to back up for a second and, and, and go back to what sort of what you guys said. And, and I think it's fair based upon this EMG to say that just as you said, this is an inflammatory myopathy. And, and that is, I, I, that is the right answer. Let's say that. I mean, we, as, as we develop new tools and these new antibodies, mm -hmm. I think of all the diseases that, now we send these antibodies panels for sure. that we didn't. And I can certainly say within my career, you know, look at all the, you know, the, the autoimmune encephalopathies, you know, things, oh, yeah. things that go along with, you know, whether they're markers of malignancy or they're markers of this or whether they're markers of that. And so our ability to be specific with, with these antibodies, you know, goes up and up and up and up. And, and sometimes we can tie them to, diseases that we had a name for before, and sometimes we can't tie them at all. Sure. And, and in this case, there is a disease that we can tie okay. to with this name. And uh, Kevin will be able to tell you about that in a minute, but it, 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 is, it is new. Sure. And so this, you know, X, X, with X being a small number, a number of years ago, this would not have wow. tied this to a disease 
that, as, as you guys said, was a disease that was biopsy driven, but now is EMG and antibody driven and, uh, and with testing characteristics good enough to be diagnostic. That's awesome. You know, that's great that medicine has these things that we can do. So you don't need to take tissue from a person. It's really cool. Yeah. Much less invasive. All right. Now the challenge guys, <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling good about where you guys are at. I, there's, I don't mean this in a bad way, but I don't think you guys know what anti-CN1A is because I definitely didn't. And I, I definitely did. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's right. I know that's not helpful, but I think if we remember everything from the case, there's a bunch of things we've found and a bunch of things we didn't see. We seem to have a direction in terms of a differential of a category of diseases we're thinking about. Knowing what you guys know about that category of diseases, what do you think the final diagnosis is? Or at least tell me what you are less suspicious for it being as part of those categories. I think autoimmune is, a, is something that I keep focusing on. I feel like, you know, I don't know, but I feel like this is pushing us away from neurologic territory to the, like the neuropathy or disease of the neurons to a muscle pathology. You mentioned polymyositis, dermatomyositis. Those are two myositis. I think there's more. Are you worried about those? I'd say so. Again, like for me, I just never associated those diseases with bulbar or swallowing issues, which is just kind of different. I love that. <laughs> I'm wondering in my mind, there's, um, there's this idea that for some reason, Lambert Eaton has muscle, proximal muscle weakness and inflammatory, uh, muscle cells, but then also some of the bulbar symptoms, if I am not mistaken. And so I'm wondering if that kind of, I'm wondering if this antibody corresponds with Lambert Eaton, that's just circling through my mind. Yeah, I think that's really well said. You guys did great. Your, your thinking has been spot on the entire way. I know at this point, as we all would, we figure out what this antibody kind of suggests. You'd be, you'd be going to Google. <laughs> Even more than up to date. Yeah. Yeah, you're, going, you're, you're going to Google the way we're reading a PubMed or went to Google. All right. So his phenotype and greatly elevated CK are suspicious for myopathy, like you guys were able to tease out. Uh, motor neuron disease and primary muscle atrophy seems less likely. His dysphagia, dysphagia and finger weakness are typical of inclusion body myositis, wow. which is confirmed by the positive inclusion body myositis antibody anti-C1NA. Wow. And a biopsy is <laughs> not required to see the inclusion bodies. Wow. Pretty spectacular. I think I had one. I remember learning inclusion body myositis like back in M1 or M2. And yeah. I definitely had a question on step one about it, but huh. don't think I've thought about it since then. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and I haven't thought about it for even longer. <laughs> I've thought about it. I, I, I will say this because I, and I don't know if Kevin's going to tell you more about this because maybe you learn a lot more about this condition. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I called up one of the neuromuscular neurologists after this and actually right away this is kind of what they they said oh i think it's probably this wow and i'm like how many of these cases do you guys see wow. <laughs> so now we see about one a month <laughs> and uh and uh it, it, here go ahead you, you go ahead and i can tell you i can tell you a little more about this about this specific patient after, after sure you go. yeah so the inflammatory myopathies they have some clinical features we're all we're pretty familiar with so you have increasing difficulty with tasks requiring proximal muscles the buzzwords being get out of getting out of a chair is difficult or climbing steps and lifting objects. 
tasks requiring distal muscles, so buttoning of the shirts, holding your phone, they're affected early in inclusion myositis and only in advanced cases of the remainder. The ocular muscles are spared in all of the subtypes. Facial muscles are commonly involved in IBM. Head drop dysphagia, uh, neck extensor and pharyngeal muscle involvement can be seen. Muscle atrophy is detected early in IBM with selective atrophy specifically to the quadriceps and forearms. Myalgia and tenderness may develop. Extramuscular manifestations occur in all but less commonly in IBM, such as there can be systemic symptoms, Raynaud's, arrhythmias, interstitial lung disease, and uh, a factoid is those with the anti-TRNA synthetase or anti-JO1, 70% of the people with that end up getting interstitial lung disease. The diagnosis is largely clinically driven based on the history, the tempo of progression, pattern of the muscle involvement, and then such as muscle enzyme elevations, EMG findings, biopsy, and now autoantibody analysis. So like we saw in our case, elevated CK, AST, and ALT are commonly seen. You can also check for an, an aldolase. Hmm. EMG, you have um, the myo myopathic motor unit potentials that show a short duration and low amplitude. This is for the neuro people. Increased spontaneous activity with fibrillations and positive sharp waves. And then biopsy, which is the gold standard, is in IBM, you see autophagic vacuoles, ragged red fibers, and amyloid deposits. So I thought this was a, a good way to kind of separate the four. There's four inflammatory myopathies. You have dermatomyositis, polymyositis, necrotizing autoimmune myositis, and then inclusion body myositis. They really all follow a subacute chronic temporal picture, except the necrotizing autoimmune myositis that presents much more acutely. And then the other two, John kind of started getting at this earlier, is dermatomyositis, we'd expect to see some characteristic skin rash. Polymyositis, not too much there to, to help in the clinical history, but then inclusion biomyositis, pretty characteristic to have atrophy of the quads and forearms. In terms of CK levels, this can help differentiate between the four. Uh, high, but less than 50 times the upper limit of normal can suggest dermatomyositis. Lingering around 10 times the upper limit is polymyositis. Extremely elevated is necrotizing autoimmune myositis. And then inclusion body has an elevated CK, but doesn't often exceed 10 times the upper limit of normal. Then there's, there's biopsy findings. I think there's even, from what I remember with step one stuff, CDA T cells or CD4 T cells being a differentiator. And then there's the whole slew of antibodies now that are associated with the, the four and with some specificity to them and I'm not going to go through them, but they exist. If they are positive or not can also suggest whether other, whether other clinical things sure. might develop or not. I think just to, just to wrap up some dermatomyositis review. So there's the early skin manifestations. We have the periorbital heliotrope rash, V sign on the chest, the shawl sign on the back. There's the violaceous eruption on the knuckles, which are Gotron's papules. They have mechanic hands. What I actually learned is polymyositis, polymyositis is a diagnosis of exclusion. Mm. So you, you have to rule out the other three first, mm. and then you can say, okay, this is polymyositis. And IBM is actually the most common and most disabling. Oh. Patients are often 50 years or older. It's insidious. It develops over years. It's often asymmetric. And what makes it tricky is it mimics late life muscular dystrophy, motor neuron disease. So it got us there. We were thinking ALS. We were thinking motor neuron stuff. Um, there's early involvement of the distal mu muscles and they frequently can have falls. We've talked about the diagnosis and then the unfortunate part of IBM is 
treatment, it's pretty unresponsive to treatments that other myositis respond to. So immunosuppressive agents don't work. And it's thought that it's because this disease starts too early before diagnosis is ever achieved. Glucocorticoids, methotrexate, cyclosporine, azathioprine, and mycophenolate don't work. IVIG doesn't work. And then there's some initial studies suggesting that alemtuzumab has some short-term benefits, but nothing in the long-term. So current medicine isn't caught up to IBM treatment yet. Not to say that that won't happen, but I'll let Dr. Abrams kind of fill us in on. Yeah. So again, Kevin just did a great job teaching teaching me a bunch of new things. Um, So the the patient, in my discussions with the neurologist, it, it is, as Kevin says, that is in general treatment of this disease Treatment doesn't necessarily change the progression of the disease. In a small number of cases, it, it actually may. And, and, and again, because of the chronicity of the disease, and that's, you know, you say, oh, this has been four months, but has it really been four months? Um, so people that are in sort of that acute inflammatory period may respond to, to treatment. This patient was admitted, I think, two weeks ago and received a course of high dose corticosteroids. Um, and it takes a while to see if there's any response at all. He said he felt a little better by the end of it. Um, at the same time, there was discussion about putting in a feeding tube in him because he literally, it, it, it just, as, just, as, Grace, just as you said at the beginning, he couldn't take the bolus of his food and move it to the back of his mouth. Yeah. And so his ability to feed himself is really is, is really limited and and that may be a big at least part of his weight loss. So he's he's being evaluated for placement of a feeding tube. Mm-hmm. You know, what's what's interesting, at least to me, Kevin, and maybe you read this, this is not considered a fatal disease. It, yeah, it does it, not really change life expectancy. Yes. It's not rapidly progressive. It does not. Yeah, it's 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 not it's not like ALS, which you know is fatal. This is not. I mean, people um, become wheelchair bound. People become feeding tube bound, and it would seem to me that they'd be at risk of you know aspiration sure. or that this. But it's not considered a fatal disease, and so people live a live live a at least somewhat long time, but they are very debilitated with this, mm-hmm. and uh, so. You know, so quality of life so is significantly quality reduced. of life is significantly reduced. Time will tell. Um, and again, you know, we'll, we'll, this, this is sort of we'll see. I actually talked to this person at the end of last week, and, and he's feeling very positive about it. And uh, you know, maybe he got the burst from the from a lot of steroids that he got. Sure. But he <laughs> said he felt a little bit better. All right. Thanks, John and Grace. You guys. Thank you for having us. Yeah, this you is guys are fabulous. <laughs> I continue to be impressed with every episode we do. I just love, love to hear you guys think it's so awesome to see how far we've come and Absolutely. really not that long of a period of time. Um, true. Yeah. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll keep our new episodes coming and have guests ready to come talk on the show. And with that, we'll keep it alert and oriented.